How are we all doing? Good? Yeah? Excellent. Let's just pray, and then we'll, uh, we're just going to turn to God's Word. Father, we thank you for your presence already, and Lord, for an opportunity just to praise and to worship you. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we can just come to your Word, Lord, as an act of worship as well, as we read it, as we declare it. And Lord, we want to pray that it would change our hearts. Lord, I want to pray, Holy Spirit, just open up our hearts, our minds, open our ears. Holy Spirit, just remove blockages that would stop people from hearing and understanding. Lord, just soften our hearts again this morning. We pray that in your precious name, Jesus, the one who is worthy of all praise. Amen. So the, the, the tinsel and the sort of snowflake brigade have done their very best to make Christmas as nice and as feel-good and as soft and as fluffy as they possibly can. And whilst Christmas is certainly good news of great joy, there's a much darker theme that sort of just lurks beneath the surface. And over the next three weeks as we lead up into Christmas, I want to explore with you what it's all about now, the Bible reveals that the birth of Jesus Christ is something of enormous cosmic significance. It's the beginning of the end of a storyline that starts in the very first pages of the Bible. And this story is a story that the grip that sin and hell has over our lives and over all of mankind. It's the story of the forces of darkness that has ruled over this world since the very dawn of human history. And this is a storyline that we want to explore as we go through the Bible over this Christmas period. So are you sitting comfortably? Well, let's begin. <laughs> the story begins in Genesis chapter 3. Now, Adam and Eve lived in this beautiful Garden of Eden. There was tasty fruit all around them on many of the trees of that garden, but God had told Adam and Eve that they could eat anything in that garden except for one kind of fruit. He said, you must never eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you know the story, one day a snake slithers up to Eve and it says, see how pretty that fruit is? on that tree of knowledge of good and evil, it looks good. It tastes even better. Don't listen to God. This fruit will make you wise, so go ahead and just try some. And the, the fruit did look, it looked fabulously good. And, and so Eve ate some, and then she took some for Adam. And he ate some too, even though he knew what God had already said. And that evening, as God walks in the garden, as he did every evening, Adam and Eve are nowhere to be seen. For the first time, they try to hide from God. And God called, Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I'm hiding, I'm, I'm afraid. And God said, did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat? And Adam answered, as we normally answer, not me. 
that woman, it's her fault. She made me. And he said, it's my fault. That's, the snake told me it was going to be all right. And what starts off with just a little bit of distrust turns to disobedience. And then we lie to try and cover it. And we end up being separated from God. Now, you may be familiar with the details of this story and their meaning. The snake, which is Satan, tempts the woman to try and doubt and then to disobey God. And that fruit is taken and eaten. And although it seems like something very, very small, the fall, for that is what it was, has enormous implications. And Adam and Eve have rejected God as their king. They've chosen to think about themselves over God. And sin, well, sin must be judged. And they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden. They face frustration. They face death as a result of this. And God punishes sin by reversing the blessing that he has already given. And the goodness and the order of creation has been turned upside down. People's rule over creation is disrupted. This is part of the curse that God has placed upon mankind and upon the serpent because of, their, of this disobedient fall. Now, it may seem strange that this passage is so often read during Christmas services because what on earth has Adam and Eve and this story got to do with the baby that is born in a manger? The answer? Everything. We see in this story the consequences of sin. Let me just pick up, if you've got your Bibles, just turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 16. It says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains of childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and dust you will return. And as we read, as we look at the specifics of this curse, the curse that comes upon Adam and Eve, we see the reality of this in our everyday life. In fact, it's played out in everybody around us as well. It's worth saying for a moment, it is not God who brings evil into this world. God is not evil, not even for a moment. He is not the source of evil. Humanity is. You and I and this enemy, this serpent, Satan, who comes to try and deceive. 
And this fall touches every aspect of our lives. It, it affects our work. It affects our relationships. And instinctively, we long for significance and for eternity. But both of these things are mocked by the reality that we will all return to dust. Verse 19. And this fall is not just a story in a book. It is the living and dying reality that is common experience in every person's life. And every moment of every day, we battle and we face temptation. Sin is never far away from us. That serpent is still there trying to deceive, trying to pull us down, trying to trip us up. And what began with the bite of a fruit has affected all of our lives. It also means that every moment we face choices, we face decisions, we face temptation. And sometimes the choices that we make are good, and sometimes they're, they're not so good. Now, my bad choices normally, but not exclusively, involve food. Crisps and chocolate. Love them. Both of them. As much as possible. See, nobody purposely sits down to eat a whole family-sized bar of whole nuts in one go, followed by a few bags of crisps, what normally happens is you begin to think, you know what, fancy a few squares of chocolate. So you take a few little squares and, you know, time goes so quickly sometimes and you, before you're halfway through the bar of chocolate and then you think, well, I've gone that far. Might as well finish the thing off. And then, after all that sweet stuff, you really fancy something savoury. And before you know it, you're surrounded by empty wrappers and empty bags of crisps. And the worst thing of all, now you fancy something sweet. And greed, just like any sin, just seems to escalate. I'm sure it's played out in, in your life as it's played out in mine all too often. And there's this terrible downward spiral of sin that, just be, that begins so simply. It starts by regarding sin often with horror. So that first sin that you, you do, you're actually left with a lot of regret, a lot of remorse when it comes to chocolate, feeling pretty sick at the same time. But as you continue to sin, there comes a time when you can become desensitized to it. You can even become quite tolerant of shameful things without feeling very much at all. You see, bad choices lead to spiritual and to moral callousness and our hearts become hardened. There's a rather gross ancient Greek story of a Spartan youth who stole a fox. When the man from whom he stole the fox found him, this boy stuck the fox down his clothes to try and hide it, and he stood there without moving a single muscle while this fox tore apart his vital organs. And the boy preferring to die a painful death than to own up to being wrong. And that boy, just like Adam, just like us, we try and hide our sin and try and hide away from God. And how often sin can be hidden and, and people can stand unflinchingly and callously and hard, putting on a brave face while being torn apart on the inside. And there's this destructive nature to sin and hearts can get so hard that sometimes we don't realize it until it gets too late. 
and the ultimate conclusion of continuing down this path that overrules our conscience, that inadvertently trains ourselves to do evil and to ignore guilt, the result is a reckless life. Exactly the same consequences that Paul talks about in the second part of Romans chapter 1, where sin can get such a grip on a person that he or she loses their sense of decency and shame. And we need help. How we need help. And listen, this can happen to any of us. I wonder, are you beginning to understand why we need someone who will crush the serpent? Why we need hope in our lives? And yet we find it actually at the very beginning of Genesis. If you listen very carefully to the words of God in Genesis chapter 3, just back a few verses, picking up in verse 14, listen to this. So the Lord God said to the servant, to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now at one level, this is simply a description of how people on a whole hate snakes. They'll try to kill them because they're dangerous to mankind, especially the venomous ones. But there's also a deeper implication in here. It's a veiled promise that one day there is someone who, is bo- who will be born who will destroy the works of the devil. He will crush his head, even though he will be wounded in the process. In the curse of Genesis chapter 3 lies the first hint of salvation. One day... Someone would be born who would crush the serpent. I want you to imagine for a moment, and this is difficult because we know the end of the story. But you imagine if you're one of those early readers, people reading this for the very first time, perhaps even before the rest of the Bible is written, what might be going through your mind? What would you be thinking as you reach Genesis chapter 4? See, from that moment on, readers are wondering, they're thinking, will this next person who is born, will he be the serpent crusher? Could it be him? And the rest of Genesis is filled with terrific stories about remarkable people, but it's not so much a who done it, but a who will do it. For every new character that we will meet, we'll be asking the question, is this the one who will do it? Is this the one born of a woman who will undo the catastrophic effects of the fall, who will free us from bondage, from death, from futility. Let's pick up the story again. If you flip over the page, chapter 4, verse 1, try and read it as if reading it for the first time. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and give birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. 
in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flocks. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offspring, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And after this dreadful banishment from the Garden of Eden, there is hope in the birth of a child. New life always brings hope. In the chapter 4, verse 1, the very first thing we read, after all that's gone on, a new life has come into the world. A little later on in verse 7, there's even more encouragement. As God speaks to Cain, he tells him to do what is right, and by doing so, he will be accepted. Notice here that the Lord does not reject Cain, but he longs to train him and to nurture him despite his weakness and his vulnerability. Listen, a reader could still hope, perhaps Cain, perhaps this will be the serpent crusher. And then we get to verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go into the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. See, that hope is so short-lived. By verse 8, all the hopes are dashed. Blood is spilt. Murder has been committed. It becomes very clear that Cain is not the one. In fact, he removes the only other candidate as well. Abel is left lying dead in the field. We get into chapter 5. We come to a long list of of, of hopeful, but none of them seem to fit the bill. It's not until chapter 9 that we begin to meet someone who might be, could be, the serpent crusher. We meet a man called Noah. Now, Noah seems to be the perfect candidate. He lives righteous in an age of evil. He is obedient even when he is mocked and, is, and he's alone. In fact, he builds a big boat in the middle of nowhere. There's no water to be seen. Craziest thing ever, but he does it because he trusts in God. And he is saved through judgment and by the blessing of God. So could he be the one? Sadly, no. Let's pick up story, turn to chapter 9, verse 19. From Noah's three sons came the people who were scattered over the whole world. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and while he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside the tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Jephthah took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way, so they could not see their father's naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. And Noah's Failure, and that of his son, shows 
that Satan is still active. The serpent is still deceiving, despite the purging of all of humanity. And Noah's cursing of Ham reminds us that cursing is still part of the way this world is. Genesis chapter 3 has not been reversed. The next exciting prospect comes a few chapters later. A guy called Abram. And he looks like such a strong candidate, even better than Noah. Surely he must fulfill the role of serpent crusher. That is until he takes a trip to see the pyramids. But let's look at his credentials first of all, because if you again turn to chapter 12, just reading verses 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and from your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Listen, these verses are filled with such blessing, with such promising promises, six times at least, um, it's in, in three verses, it talks about how blessed this man is. Something big is going on here. There's just enormous and widespread promises. It must have been both exciting, but also a little bit humbling at the same time. And Abram, he leaves his home. He heads off to the promised land in obedience to the commands and to the promise of God. Here is someone who really, really trusts the word of God. He steps out in such faith. He's such a model to so many of us. And the early readers must have been wondering, does this blessing that God is giving to Abraham mean that he is the one who will crush the serpent and will overthrow the effects of the fall? You will pick up the story in verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10. Now there's a famine in the land and... Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And he was about to enter Egypt. He said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say to, your, to my sister, sorry, say you are my sister, so they will treat me well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into the palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So they took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way and his wife and everything he had. You know, under pressure, how often our true character is exposed. 
when the situation gets tough, when life gets a little bit difficult, so often we see our true character just coming out, and this is exactly what happens in Abram's, in, in, in Abram's case. True character and actions are exposed in this passage. At the same time, we see God's faithfulness to his promises beautifully, beautifully illustrated as we sadly see Abram's lack of faith in them. And Abram truly is a scumbag here, really. He displays Cardus, his lack of trust in God. He has got this astonishing disrespect for his wife. And yet God blesses Abram with wealth and he curses the innocent Pharaoh according to his promises back in verse 3 of chapter 12. And we see how God is faithful to his word time and time again. This is written across the pages of the Bible is the truth that God keeps his promises in blessing and in judgment. He is true to his word. He is true to himself. He will keep his promises to judge sin and he will keep his promises to bless sinners. And the riddle of the Bible of how these two competing desires in the heart of God are reconciled is very often a mystery to many of us. The love of God and the justice of God. And how we bring those together. In fact, how can this curse of the fall be overthrown without God being unjust and simply just forgetting about the curse and forgetting about sin? Is there another way? And what seems impossible, in the middle of that we find hope. And I just want to finish today just by giving an indication of the hope that is to come. I don't feel I can leave it here. We need to come to Jesus. No surprise to many of you here, perhaps, but just turn over to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It just helps us to understand what we've been, been worshipping through this morning, what we've been talking through this morning. Romans 3, verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to make right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And God's character encompasses both love and justice. 
And God's promise of forgiveness and judgment are both beautifully and perfectly and completely fulfilled at the cross. Jesus' death is just a shocking demonstration of how much God cares about sin, but also how much he cares about your rescue. This is what God has both promised and done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, if you are wrestling with things like God's love and God's judgment, you can never fully understand it unless you first of all come to the cross. Because it's only there that these two things make sense. It's there we see God's love poured out and God's justice taken place upon his own dear son. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you find life and you find hope. We know the Bible is remarkable in the way in which it's so happy to show the weaknesses of its heroes. You know, we see throughout the Old Testament as well into the New Testament that no one, that, see, none of us are any doubt that people like, like Noah or Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon or Peter or Paul, these are great men, but they're also moral failures. Just like us. And there's an honesty in Scripture within this book, God's book. And the reason for it, I believe, is because God wants us to know that He alone is our hero. And when God's Son comes into this world to realize that here is the true God in flesh. As we started this morning, we've talked about life being filled with choices decisions you know the decisions that we make some of them can be huge some of them not so big but each decision does often change the direction of our lives and sin is crouching at our door it's never very far away and we need help we need a hero we need Jesus we're going to go into a little bit more detail about him over the next couple of weeks. But you don't have to wait. You can choose to follow him today. You make that choice by admitting that you've got a problem. That you're a sinner. That you need some help. And when you turn to Jesus... And you ask him to set you free, to forgive you for your sins. He will forgive you. It's the wonder of the gospel. We've heard it all the way through the service, haven't we? The wonder of the message of the gospel. Listen, there is hope. In the darkest place that you find yourself, there is hope in Jesus Christ. He is the one who will deal with your sin and your guilt and your past completely. Why not come to him? Why not turn to him this morning? Let's just pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that the gospel is such good news. 
for each of us, for every one of us. Lord, we thank you, Lord. I want to thank you, Lord, for those who have already responded and put their trust in you. But Lord, I pray, Lord, that the power of the gospel would impact their life this Christmas time as well. Lord, just draw us closer. Lord, get us excited for all that you've done. And Lord, I want to pray for those who don't know you or who are far from you. Holy Spirit, begin to work in lives across this room. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to work and to change lives. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. Lord, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we turn to you, Jesus. Lord, I want to pray, Lord, just invite you to come into our hearts right now in the name of Jesus. And we give you glory for all that you have done and all that you are doing and all that you will do. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.